Equal access to justice is a core American value. In each episode of Talk Justice, an LSE podcast, we'll explore ways to expand access to justice and illustrate why it is important to the legal community, business, government, and the general public. Talk Justice is sponsored by the Leaders' Council of the Legal Services Corporation. You know, in many courts, especially housing courts, you could spend, you meeting either the lawyer or the tenant, most unfortunately, most tenants are unrepresented, even in the courts that have substantial pro bono bars. It just is the is the nature of housing. More than 90 plus percent of tenants in D.C. are not represented. And if you go into D.C. landlord tenant court, you could wait for three, four five hours just sitting there. Instead, when courts go remote, they typically will set a hearing time or at least a small window of people that will be ready and then be admitted into the kind of court Zoom room, as it were. So that really eliminated both travel time for people and also wait time for people and made it made courts much more accessible. Um, I should say, though, that, you know, as we look forward, those are our potential remedies. On the other hand, there are people who don't have access to technology. Welcome to Talk Justice, an LSC podcast. I am Ron Flagg, the president of the Legal Services Corporation. Our topic today is how the pandemic changed pro bono and what we should keep. Our guests are Adam Heinz, director of pro bono legal services at Legal Services New York City, and Steve Schulman, pro bono partner at Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, and the immediate past president of the Association of Pro Bono Council. The COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdowns used to abate the spread of the disease forced much of the world to adopt to remote interaction. Pro bono legal services were no exception. Legal aid providers, volunteer lawyers, including those at firms and corporations, and clients all have had to adopt to new means of communication. During the pandemic, client outreach, intake, case management, how we conduct legal clinics and otherwise provide services, and how we communicate and interact with the courts have all been modified. The question all of us should be asking, and this is a question we should be asking whether we work in legal aid, as pro bono lawyers or in the courts, is what have we learned from the experiences of the past two years? And what changes should be retained to maximize access to justice, particularly for people facing a variety of legal issues and lacking the means to afford a lawyer. The Association of Pro Bono Council recently issued a report addressing these questions. Steve Schulman played a significant role in the information gathering, analysis, and drafting that went into the report. Adam Heinz and I also served as part of the advisory team that supported the effort. Let's start with an overview. Adam, you're a legal aid lawyer. How did the pandemic change the work of legal services of New York City? First, let me say thanks, Ron. I'm really happy to be here today with you and with Steve talking about this uh, issue. I know that we've discussed uh, many times in different capacities um, because it's just so um, pressing and interesting. And um, also, despite all the challenges, um, exciting as we look forward to the future. Uh, in response to your, your question, how the pandemic changed work at Legal Services NYC, the answer is radically and in almost every way imaginable. Pre-pandemic, we did very little of our work remotely. We had 
around 20 different offices based in communities around New York City. We had close relationships with community-based organizations where we would partner for outreach with clients. Um, we had a number of different clinics, um, uh, different community-based organizations, veterans hospitals, and other locations to help us to access clients. But we were fortunate enough pre-pandemic to have also created an access line, sort of regular business hour, live answer hotline, staffed by paralegals who speak more than a dozen languages between them that would intake callers across the whole city, across all of our 20 different practice areas. So pre-pandemic, about half of our intake was done through that hotline. And thank God we had it because once the pandemic came and we had to shut down all of that in-person outreach for a time, it became incredibly important for us to have access to people via phone. So what we did in response to the pandemic with regards to the access line was to um, think about how we could expand our staff and our hours to serve more clients. But I want to sort of also talk about the impact on our staff. I'm sure everyone hearing this was impacted by the pandemic themselves directly. And I want to just acknowledge that that was true, of course, for legal aid lawyers, advocates, and staff. So we were trying to juggle our kids, our own lives, sometimes sick family members, and all of the challenges that came from trying to suddenly figure out how to be a lawyer for someone or advocate for someone from your own home instead of from an office. So there was a big technology shift. We were lucky to have a great tech department that helped us to get there, but it meant you know, spending a lot of money on laptops, on webcams, on making sure everyone on staff had access to um, Wi-Fi to be able to function that way. And we were lucky to have some funding from LSC to help support us in that work, like many of our sister organizations did in response to the pandemic. I also just want to flag, in terms of the change that we saw, the change for our clients. So it's hard to overstate the desperation of our client population during that time. So as, as difficult as it was for, for me and for my colleagues, uh, that was really nothing compared to our client base. So we saw this incredible influx of new clients, many of whom had never been eligible for our services before. But so many people who were paid hourly, lost their jobs, had limited access to resources to be able to uh, make up for that loss of income, were just desperate to find food for their children, desperate to keep a roof over their heads, desperate to access you know, medical care during a pandemic. So we had to really you know, figure out how to respond to changing needs from our client base and also to this influx of new clients. Your last point about the uh, client perspective is critical. All of us who work in legal aid or supporting legal aid have gone through, uh, as, as really everybody in the world has, personal challenges. One way to put that in perspective is to think about the people we're trying to uh, serve. And uh, as you say, across the board, mm -hmm. the challenges they face have been far more desperate generally from a starting point of having been left behind even before the pandemic and now falling farther behind and with greater challenges. Steve, how did the pandemic change pro bono work at Aiken Gump, which for our listeners is a large firm with offices around the country and around the world? Ron, I want to pick up on what you said about the differential impact of the, of the pandemic. And no doubt, you know, we had a client population that was impacted far more severely than our lawyers were, to be sure. On the other hand, when the pandemic started, the initial view from pro the pro bono community, and I think from at least some of the legal aid community, was to look at this through the disaster relief 
lens, which was partly true, but what we had done in Katrina and Superstorm Sandy and Hurricane Harvey and wildfires was not, didn't respond to what was going on. We were all in the disaster to some extent. So that made this a really unusual time where initially, those of us who run major law firms, when a disaster happens, we take advantage of our lawyers coming to us and saying, how can I help? How can I help the people in New Orleans who are suffering from Katrina? How can I help the businesses in lower Manhattan that have been flooded out by Superstorm Sandy? How can I help that? People still wanted to help, but it wasn't just a single population to help. And so the first thing that we realized we needed to do was to secure our clients, our, our current clients. You know, normally, again, we're going out and saying, okay, how can we get down to New Orleans or remotely help people in New Orleans and, and Katrina? Instead, job one was we have to reassure all of our clients that we are still working. And, and Legal Aid was in the same position. And I know from doing the report, we had a lot of organizations that reported that job one was making sure their clients knew that they were still operating because their doors were closed. And you know, so many of Legal Aid's population is still appears at Legal Aid at the door, not, not at the email or the, or the phone, but at the door. So that was really a, an unusual thing for us to get our arms around was that A, we were kind of all in this together without for a moment doubting that many people had it much, much worse than, than lawyers for sure but that we had to just transition our own work. We had to make sure that our clients knew that we weren't dropping them, learn what was going on for each of our clients. So an immigration client, what's going on with the immigration courts? What's going on with asylum office interviews? So all of that kind of turned pro bono into kind of initially just responding to our current client population and then trying to figure out how can we help the broader population that is uh, coming to our legal aid partners in search of, of help uh, and potentially pro bono help as well. Now, one of the, the silver linings in this, or maybe it's not a silver lining, but at least could have been much worse, was the amount of money the federal government poured into relief programs, which did require some help, but not as much help as I think we might have thought from lawyers to access the eviction moratoria that limited the amount of housing work that we had to do. It didn't eliminate housing work by any stretch, but it limited the amount. Th those programs gave us some, I think, breath to look and to figure out how are we going to continue to help our clients. Yeah, what I saw both with the eviction moratorium and the emergency rental assistance uh, that you mentioned is those provided really powerful tools, which uh, did, at least while the moratoria were in effect and while the emergency rental assistance money was still available and it's, it's now beginning to be dissipated, it gave both clients and the legal aid community and their pro bono allies tools to help the clients that you didn't normally have, but these, they were not self-executing tools by any means. They, uh, for maximum effect, needed the assistance of people to make sure that the intended beneficiaries of those programs were in fact helped. And that's where legal aid and pro bono lawyers made a big difference. Uh, Steve, you're here 
you know, wearing two hats. One is as uh, uh, pro bono counsel at uh, Aiken Gump, but also you really uh, were instrumental in putting together the uh, Association of Pro Bono Counsel report. What stood out from the report as sort of aha moments for you or things that you think anybody who's looking back on the last two years uh, ought to know? Well, there are two, I guess, kind of big aha moments. One is a moment, and the moment that actually led somewhat to writing the report. I was on a call, and I think, Adam, you were part of this discussion, too, that the Association of Provident Council had with our legal aid allies sometime in maybe late 2020 or early 2021, as we were, we were having some of these discussions. And I was on a breakout call with a lawyer who worked on domestic violence cases on getting protective orders. And she was commenting how remote kind of Zoom hearings for protective orders were in fact far better for her client population. That the, the women who were, who were subjected to domestic violence and seeking protective orders did not have to physically appear proximate to the abuser as would happen typically in court. Courts, I, I should mention, had ways of trying to mitigate the fear of the women would have of facing their abusers, but they couldn't eliminate it because the way the courts work, the two people are in the same room, and there's only so much uh, that, that the court could do to, to manage that. But with Zoom, a client could easily could minimize the window, not, not even look at the, at the abuser, and be physically safe and feel physically safe from the abuser. I mean, so that really opened my eyes that, you know what, there may be things that we want to do after the pandemic ends that we did only because of the pandemic. Um, and there are a number of examples of that. And on the panel that you, Adam, and I did for ABCO, um, Judge Roy Ferguson from Texas talked about some of those things. The other point, the second point of the aha moment was the ingenuity of legal aid organizations in reaching out to their client populations just kind of blew me away. I mean, everything from using ring doorbells to communicate with, with clients who had no other way of accessing help and needed to be physically distanced, but could actually come and talk to somebody through that little portal to legal aid of the bluegrass, taking laptops out into rural communities so that people could communicate back with lawyers in the cities. You know, things where I think that as lawyers, you know, part of it, we become lawyers because in some ways we're not entrepreneurs. You know, we like the relative stability of the law. We like that perch. But the ingenuity that people had, and I hope we, we will continue that and learn from it in ways that are very client-focused as well. And so that's one thing that, as Adam started out, you know, you really need to, to be client-focused on all this going forward. And that was, in writing the ABCO report, our our operating philosophy was we cannot write a report that is, this is the way to make pro bono more convenient for the pro bono volunteers. If that's incidental and we get more volunteers because things can be more convenient, then great. We don't want to eliminate that as a factor. But really what we want to do is make sure that we can reach as many of the low-income population as possible who needs legal services. Adam, Steve mentioned uh, ingenuity, and you already have talked about the changes in intake. Could you talk a little more about uh, the changes that uh, legal services of New York City saw with regard to outreach? Uh, 
previously, presumably, you were able to go to, as you said, to community-based meetings and see people face-to-face. -face. So could you talk about outreach? And then once a client relationship was formed, how did uh, Lisnick adjust the way you communicated with clients? You know, let me, let me just start by saying that I had a lot to learn, um, that I didn't realize I had a lot to learn before the pandemic about our clients' access to and comfort with technology. And then the flip side being a, a bit of um, riffing off what Steve was just saying, the burdens that we were perhaps largely uh, unknowingly or maybe just not thoughtfully enough imposing on clients with our sort of old model of work. So if you had asked me in February of 2020, whether I wanted to set up some remote pro bono clinics where the attorneys would never meet the clients face-to-face, -face, I would have told you, forget about it. Like you're just doing that for the reason that Steve was saying, right? That you're just wanting comfort for the volunteers and you're not thinking about our clients um, who are gonna really value seeing you face-to-face -face, and what about the technology gap? Um, how are people gonna access it? And that perspective was wrong. And it was wrong because so many of our clients have access to phones. Many of them have access to, to video phones um, in some fashion or to the internet in some fashion, but almost all of our clients have access at least to telephones. And we had the technology two years ago, probably had the technology 10 years ago to be offering much greater access to our services remotely, whether that's by a phone call, whether that's by setting up you know, a video call or some other format. So this forced us, right, to reckon with our technology of 10 years ago, which is even better now, of course, than it was then, and start meeting clients where they were. And at that time in New York City, right, it was dramatic. Everything was shut down. No one was riding the subways. Um, people who had to work in the delivery services were, were out and about, and almost no one else was. Uh, many of our clients were sort of stuck at home. Many of our clients had kids who couldn't go to school and were sort of stuck with them. And so the ability to focus on the access line, answer calls, and then respond to clients with technology. And I, I say technology, but I mean in the most basic way, right? Being as available as possible in any way possible to clients, even if that's just over the phone, I think was really crucial. So, you know, we continued our relationships with community-based organizations, recognizing that we're lawyers and we uh, try to be as close to the community as possible, but we are not the same as a tenant organization or a local transgender um, community-based organization that focuses on Spanish-speaking clients in a neighborhood in Brooklyn, right? We're never going to be as close to the communities we work with as our community-based partners. So maintaining those relationships, doing new outreach to them, letting them know how to access our services you know, easily and safely was important. We also reopened at least a skeleton crew at many of our offices as soon as possible so that we could still respond to clients um, who needed to come in that way and figure out how we could serve them safely, safely for them, safely for, for our staff. And I wanna mention another piece about what changed about intake, which is that prior to the pandemic, we were turning away whole classes of cases because we had limited resources, right? There's only so much we can do for the people who call us based on the number of staff that we have and the money that we have to pay those staff. But there were whole categories of cases like public benefits applications, like unemployment insurance, and a range of other matters that we really just couldn't take on until people had already lost their attempt to get food stamps or cash assistance or their attempt to get unemployment insurance. And so we realized like in that moment of the pandemic, it wasn't tenable 
to keep turning people away who were in this moment in time when they couldn't maybe even safely go to a food pantry. Maybe the food pantry wasn't open at that time because of the pandemic, but they still needed to eat, right? They still needed access to these essentials of life. And to tell them, come back to us in several months when you've gone without food all of that time and then we'll deal with the appeal was just not acceptable, I think, to, to any of us. And because our staff were really eager to help our clients, despite all the things we were going through, and because you know of the eviction moratorium, we had some additional bandwidth from some of our housing um, lawyers who weren't dealing with eviction cases in the same way that they were before. So we really quickly stood up a large public benefits application clinic, for example, um, which as our staff got busier, um, we quickly pivoted to become a law firm project um, that ended up being three clinics a week for 11 months where we helped more than a thousand clients to apply for cash assistance, food stamps, uh, Medicaid, and a range of other public benefits at the outset. And part of what was really great about that model speaks to sort of our approach to how we help clients in this new context. We were helping them with the justice gap, of course, because people didn't have access to lawyers if we weren't able to help them. And these systems are technical and confusing and sometimes punitive. But we were also helping them with the technology gap, right? So we didn't want to set up projects where we said to clients, you know, you need to be able to download WebEx. Um, you need to have a laptop with a good camera so we can see you. Um, we didn't say you had to be restricted in all of these ways. We said, if you can call us, we can do it for you. We're gonna give you pro bono lawyers who can fill out the application for you online and you don't even have to have access to the internet to do that. And if you speak a language um, that's different than what the online application is in, we'll get an interpreter for you or the firm will so that we can interpret for you and help you um, to do that application. Um, so it meant providing um, different types of resources to bridge those gaps with clients, um, but it wasn't necessarily hard to do, right? Um, it was just a matter of being flexible and open to clients and talking to our law firm partners about being flexible and open to clients um, and meeting people where they were at in the most convenient way possible for them. For some folks that meant a phone call and a firm sending a prepaid envelope to get documents and then sending it back. For other folks, it was like, get used to texted photos of documents uh, and we can use those to upload. Um, so that's sort of just one example of how we changed, I think, our approach to client work and to outreach. Um, with regard to how our work with clients continued sort of after we accepted representation, um, I think all of those factors are true for that as well. We really have tried to take to heart giving clients the power to make the decision about what form of contact works best for them. Um, and that, again, means not being stuck on one type of technology or one platform, but instead being open to a range of platforms. Um, it meant um, also thinking through if clients were flexible, um, what is the easiest thing possible for people to use? And I'm not getting any promotional, promotional kickbacks from these companies, but you know we found DocuSign was super easy for clients to use. You don't have to download something. Um, it's not hard to kind of open the document and, and you know sort of zoom in on this or that. You really just needed to be able to open an email and put your finger on the phone um, and get a signature that way. Um, it meant that we found Zoom for people who were um, able to access it was easier than many of the other platforms. Again, just less fussy. Um, so we're flexible, but we also tried to identify the most simple forms of communication for clients um, that we could then use. And the plus was, which we'll talk about a little more later, it turned out to be way more efficient for us too, um, so that we were actually able to get some of these you know, onerous forms that we need for compliance and various funders that we were like tracking people down with reams of paper before, we were now able to get much more efficiently um, than we were able to do beforehand.
Steve, could you talk a little bit about your communications with your pro bono lawyers, communications both with your clients and their clients and with the courts, because that's sort of the third part of this uh, triangle is the communications uh, that before had always been in person and now uh, many courts are either closed or operating remotely. Right, yeah, I'll take the courts first. I mean, the courts for a while were closed as you, as you mentioned, and then many of them pivoted to online platforms where we could do hearings. And this is true in the immigration context, for example. And what changed in immigration, the immigration courts have for years what they call VTC or video teleconference for detained immigrants. That wasn't truly a remote hearing. It was a remote person, the immigrant who was detained in a detention center and would be in a room in a detention center looking at television where everybody else was in court. So instead, it really what we found was that moving that kind of hearing to a peer video hearing where everybody is equal, everybody is looking at a computer to be part of the hearing or a phone, depending on, on your, your mode, really changed the ballgame there because it wasn't now the, the immigrant being kind of excluded from court. Everybody was in the same platform and on the same level. So we certainly saw that as a dramatic improvement. And of course, the logistics of getting into court made this a lot easier. And I know Adam, Adam and I have talked about this over, over the course of the report, that you know, in many courts, especially housing courts, you could spend, you meeting either the lawyer or the tenant, most unfortunately, most tenants are unrepresented, even in the courts that have substantial pro bono bars. It just is the, is the nature of housing. More than 90 plus percent of tenants in DC are not represented. And if you go into DC landlord tenant court, you could wait for three, four, five hours just sitting there. Instead, when courts go remote, they typically will set a hearing time or at least a small window of people that will be ready and then be admitted into the kind of court Zoom room, as it were. So that really eliminated both travel time for people and also wait time for people and made it made courts much more accessible. Um, I should say, though, that, you know, as we look forward, those are our potential remedies. On the other hand, there are people who, as Adam's talked about, don't have access to technology. What some of the OSC organizations have done that we talked about was actually providing Zoom rooms so that you could still do it on Zoom. You could go to then the legal aid office and, you know, be comfortable there, have a, have a room there. So I think, you know, thinking again, from a client-centric perspective, making sure that, that we're not just saying, well, the client needs to have technology or the client needs to go to court. There are other ways to think creatively about it. And then in terms of, of Aiken Gump's practice, one thing that we developed while we were in kind of in lockdown, it was around July, August, 2020, we were speaking with CASA, which is an organization that works with immigrants in the DC area. And they wanted us to help uh, DACA applicants. Those are applicants for the Deferred Action uh, Program. So uh, folks who were brought to the United States as children and then were not able to get status except through this Deferred Action Program. It's a very, a pretty basic online or can be online form, but it's pretty basic form filling and document collection. 
Uh, and as we were talking with CASA, and CASA had never done a remote clinic for this. In fact, I had we had done a number of clinics with CASA and others. And basically what it is, is, is a first meeting with the client, getting the client to get all the documents together, and then having essentially almost like an assembly line in a, in a big conference room where the client comes in, checks in with the paralegal, goes over their paperwork, brings the paperwork you know, to the lawyer. The lawyer sits with them, goes over the paperwork for a while, make sure everything's fine. Then they go and they sign it with the notary or, and get everything kind of finally signed and, and perfected. And we realized that that process could be done remotely, especially with the DACA population, which tends to be pretty tech savvy. Remember, these are kids by all measures, except for the legal measure, are American kids. They grew up here in the United States speaking English. They are, uh, by definition, young because there are age limits to the DACA population. So you're talking about people that grew up with technology. So we reached out to our internal IT people at Aiken Gump to see whether we could come up with an IT solution for this. And they introduced us to a Salesforce platform called Quip, Q-U-I-P. We realized we could set it up and create essentially a, what I like to call a disaggregated clinic. The sense is then instead of trying to get everybody at the same place at the same time, which is typically what we think about a clinic is whether you're virtual or in person, you're thinking about everybody getting to the same place at the same time, right? And, and interacting that way. Instead, Quip allowed us to set up very clear instructions and steps and then communication within the program. And there's an app both on the computer, but you can download it on the phone. So a person applying for DACA who was introduced us through CASA could download the app upload all the documents by scanning them up through their phone camera and answer a list of questions uh, that would then be transmitted to the lawyer. The lawyer, when the lawyer had a moment, would look at it, would transmit questions back, would eventually talk to the client. It wasn't entirely remote, but you can see they went, went kind of back and forth in this iterative process in a secure platform where documents could be uploaded where it wasn't an email communication that could get just get lost in the cascade of emails that come into our inboxes. We ended up helping well over 300 people apply for DACA through that. That would have been 10 clinics worth, at least, of DACA clinics that would have taken weeks and weeks to organize and orchestrate. And so instead, we're able to do that. So that's an example of one where we certainly will continue to use it post-pandemic. And again, one where, where I think it's, it's good for the lawyers, but it's really good for the clients, recognizing that, um, that not every client population would, um, would find this to be um, an easy platform. Thanks, Stephen. And that's a perfect segue into really the final question, and in some sense, the most important question of this podcast, which is, what should we keep going in the future? And, and a related question, which I think is important, how should we determine which of these innovations we should keep or how to integrate them into uh, an overall delivery of legal services framework? Adam, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I think my answer to, the, to both questions is sort of the same, which is we should offer clients a choice and then see what they prefer. Uh, people will be voting with, with their mm -hmm. feet in a sense, right? If they know they have a choice between in-person or remote or a mix of the two, We'll have to see what that looks like over time. Having remote options for client interactions, for court appearances, um, to the extent the courts continue to allow them, 
are just hugely important. You know, I've learned, we've learned that many clients find it more convenient and prefer it. Not everyone, and that's okay too. But as we start, you know, God willing, moving through the end of the pandemic, or at least a place in which people are functioning more normally with more spaces open, we'll be able to sort of test these theories that we're talking about now. Because during the height of the pandemic, of course, no one had a choice, right? It had to, it had to be remote. And now we'll be reaching a point where clients will potentially be able to um, choose for themselves. For pro bono, at least, you know, remote work has been an unbelievable success. We are doing more than we were ever doing before. Um, if you look at clinics, for example, Steve was talking about some of the mechanics of clinics. We were doing a lot of clinics before the pandemic, and I couldn't imagine we could do any more. We were maybe doing around 70 a year pro bono clinics. But as Steve said, right, I had to get all my staff usually to the law firm. The staff had to organize their staff. We had to get the clients there and make sure they had the directions. We had to get Metro cards to them. We had to have them sign the forms. We had to hope all the attorneys were available that day. It was a lot of juggling. And in the end, there was a lot of drop-off from clients, not through their own fault, but just through the fact of having to get to Midtown or wherever it was, was a challenge for a whole bunch of reasons. And it took a huge amount of our staff time. So now we're doing north of 150 clinics a year in the remote setting, because from the staff perspective, it's so much more efficient. We can do, you know, multiple clinics in a day, depending on what the issue area is, because, you know, we can drop into a Zoom, do the training, and then the teams are responsible, um, usually, with support from the law firms for setting up their interactions with the clients. So we prep the clients for what to expect and how they're going to be communicated with and what they prefer. The teams work with them. And then we're like have an attorney available, you know, either by Zoom, on email, by phone to sort of mentor the teams as they go throughout. So that's just a wildly more efficient model for us. But, you know, my sense, and again, we have to see as people vote with their feet in this hopefully better world we're entering shortly, but clients seem to be preferring it more so too. And I have sort of two bases for saying that. The first is that our client drop-off is way less than it was before the pandemic for clinics. To take just one example, Steve referenced victims of domestic violence. Um, we do a couple of different clinics focused on victims, survivors of domestic violence, and they are even among our client population, which is dealing with a lot, they are among our most difficult clients um, to connect with because they're dealing with, you know, a whole range of challenges. They're not safe in their homes. They're in shelters. They may not have regular access to a phone. They may be trying to manage their kids in a new neighborhood they've had to flee to. And so when we were setting up our domestic violence clinics in the past, we would, you know, budget for like 40% of people not coming, no matter how thoughtful we tried to be about getting them there. In a remote setting, it's 90% or better who are able to attend because we've built in more flexibility and because our old model was making them bring those kids with them, try to arrange childcare, um, give up hourly wages for the, from their jobs to come to meet us, get on the train, you know, things that are really hard for people who are disabled, people who are working hourly jobs, people with kids, um, and a range of other folks as, as well. So I think, you know, having that option is really key and I suspect is going to be more of what we're doing than in-person going forward, although we'll see. And then the second thing that gives me a sense that this is going to be preferred by many of our clients is that we asked them. We surveyed not, you know, every client we serve, but we surveyed sort of targeted across several of our pro bono initiatives, the clients we've been helping through the pandemic to ask, like, what do you think about this remote work? How's it going for you? Have you found it hard to work with your lawyer? What would your preference be? And to my surprise, around three quarters of the people that we surveyed preferred at least some amount of remote interaction with their attorneys, which makes a ton of sense for the same reason why many of us prefer some amount of remote interaction in our jobs. It's just 
way more convenient and easier for people for a range of reasons. I'm interested to see you know, where we end up in a year. Maybe the conversation will look different, but from where I sit today, um, my expectation is we're gonna keep a whole bunch of this going forward. Thanks, Adam. Steve, final thoughts. What should the world look like going forward and how should we figure out the answer to that question? Well, the first question we should be asking in any mode of either representation or adjudication is why are we doing it this way? Not saying we're doing it this way because this is the way we do it. That's not an acceptable answer. And it's not acceptable that we're doing it for the convenience of the court personnel or for the convenience of the lawyers. It needs to be for the best representation possible for the people who need representation and making sure that we are both expanding representation. You know, pro bono is not going to solve the justice gap except for the individuals for which it does solve the justice gap. Uh, so we, we, we close the justice gap on a person by person basis. Um, so that's what we need to be doing is first asking those questions. And as Adam said, for some of it, it may be, look, we can get 80 volunteers by doing a remote clinic. We know we'd only get 20 and, you know, and we're going to serve a lot more people that way. Um, some of it may be figuring out the technology gap, figuring out how to solve it is no more complicated than actually taking a laptop to somebody. Like we tend not to think about that. We, at big law firms, we tend to say things like, yeah, we'll send 10 people to the border in Mexico, but we won't actually buy a few laptops to send to our clients, you know, in the next borough over. And those are things we really need to be thinking more hard about is how we are going to use the tools that we now know that we have. We were blind to some of those tools before, as Adam said, some of those tools are actually, I used to do communications work and there was a, there was a, uh, a term they used, POTS, which is plain old telephone service. So we use, we could just use plain old telephone service sometimes. And that's what DVAP, for example, did a clinic with us where it was just the client expected a call in like a three hour window. And it used to be the DVAP is Dallas Volunteer Attorney Project that we would have, you know, the traditional clinic that Adam talked about, you know, lawyers going down to the DVAP office, which is only about four blocks away from our old offices, you know, sitting down with the clients and meeting with the clients. In a three year period of multiple clinics, we had about two dozen different people volunteer at the firm. When we went to a phone clinic, we had 24 people volunteered for that single clinic. And I'm sure the clients enjoyed it more as well. They didn't have to schlep downtown. They could, you know, access the lawyer at their, you know, at their convenience, give a window when they could access. And we, we did as much as we would have done in multiple clinics. And then I think the other thing that we have responsibility for as advocates is pushing courts to not just go back to the way they used to do things. That's where I fear the most, in part because we don't have, we as advocates don't have the ultimate control over what, what happens in the courts. It's obviously a separate branch, but I think we need to be steadfast in presenting to the courts the cost of going back to 2019 way of doing business. I know from, from some judges that you know, fumbling between hearings on Zoom is not as easy as having, you know, 40 people sit in your courtroom and you just call up, you know, John Smith and John Smith trudges up to the, to the lectern. But what you're not seeing is that that John Smith and the other 39 people in the courtroom had to find childcare for their kids, had to give up hours of their job, 
had to travel to the court. Um, all of that is a cost that is not seen. We need to make sure that the courts are seeing that cost. There are ways around it, and we've discovered those ways. And God forbid we should go back to 2019 and do things uh, in a way that just was not serving the interest of our clients and the interest of justice. Amen. Steve Schulman, Adam Heinz, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. But far more importantly, thank you for your service to people in need of legal assistance to meet really life-impacting problems that they face every day, and your leadership both before the pandemic and during the pandemic. Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, Bridget McCormick, has said several times in the last couple of years, this isn't a crisis wanted, but it's the crisis that justice needs to improve itself. But it's only going to improve itself if we have people like yourselves uh, leading the way, identifying the innovation that's going to make a difference and insisting on taking a client-centric view to identify the most helpful innovations. I can't thank you more profoundly for everything you've been doing and your leadership. Stay well. Podcast guest speakers' views, thoughts, and opinions are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the Legal Services Corporation's views, thoughts, or opinions. The information and guidance discussed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice. You should not make decisions based on this podcast content without seeking legal or other professional advice.